0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, produced in partnership with the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, we'll be focusing on ways to create safer environments across medical facility departments while treating patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. To discuss this are IDSA board member Dr. John Lynch of the University of Washington and SHEA member Dr. Erica Chenoy of Harvard University. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Lynch, I'd like to start with you. How have recent capacity surges impacted hospitals' ability to maintain infection prevention and control practices? And in what areas of the hospital are challenges particularly significant?
1: Yeah, thanks, Nadia. I mean, we could talk about Lots of details here. Um, You know, every hospital in some ways is unique, but we all share a lot of similar challenges. I'd say one of the key things to keep in mind, and I think all of us in healthcare are feeling this now, that is significantly challenging, I think infection prevention practices within facilities is just the sheer exhaustion and how long this has been going on for our facilities and our colleagues in healthcare. People are just very, very tired with working through all of these challenges all of the concerns, the risk, to some extent, fear, and the complexity of care that we're engaged in right now. And I think that that's probably the predominant challenge. There are definitely populations within healthcare that I think are continue to create some significant challenges and maybe newer challenges as we work through outbreaks in different populations, particularly like in my facilities here in Seattle, working with uh, outbreaks we're seeing in people who are living homeless and living in shelter situations, Uh, folks working through behavioral health issues and long-term care, where they're coming in from the community and spending significant amounts of time in the hospital, and maybe going in and out of those types of facilities. I would say that there's lots of challenges with the surge. Some of them are new. Some of them are the same as we dealt with back earlier in 2020. But beneath all of that is just this sense of exhaustion. Probably the biggest challenge that I've seen, and just talking to colleagues, are folks And inpatients in inpatient facilities that require long-term stays. So for instance, things like uh, behavioral health facilities or behavioral health units, where patients are often engaged in congregate parts of their uh, therapies. So working together, spending time in corridors, as opposed to being, uh, staying in their rooms or something similar, you know, but when we look at what's going on in places like the emergency departments, ambulatory settings, it's been pretty much similar and reflective of community infection prevalence rates.
2: Behavioral health poses a unique challenge in the sense that it is congregate in many ways. It's also a population that may have challenges in abiding with universal masking. And so I think that is certainly a unique population. I would say that the emergency department for us continues to be a real challenge. I think it's just uh, mostly a function of the way emergency departments are. It's very busy. There is a, a pace in terms of the evaluation of patients and during the surge with capacity challenges within the hospital, it kind of filters back to the emergency department with um, increasing lengths of stay while we're waiting for disposition of the patients.
0: Thank you, doctors. Dr. Chenoy, sticking with you, what is your institution doing right now to address these challenges And are there specific areas where the environment of care or patient populations present unique challenges? One of the amazing things about the pandemic is
2: necessity creates some innovative approaches to this. And some of the things that we've been trying most recently in our emergency department are, if you think back to the hierarchy of controls, the first one is elimination. And that's really hard to do in an emergency room. But one of the projects that's ongoing is the creation of Uh, virtual observation units. So in patients who might normally come to the emergency room, are we able to uh, virtually observe them in the home and have uh, deploy resources to the home in order to uh, avoid a visit to the emergency room? So we're trying to work on, on those sorts of approaches to decongest the emergency room. But in the emergency room, Compliance with universal masking um, can also be a challenge. Um, we do have behavioral health patients who are awaiting placement in a facility. I don't know, John, if this is an issue with you as well, but those beds, which in normal times are often scarce, are even more scarce uh, nowadays. And so they, we can have patients who um, are in our emergency room for quite a while, and in those cases, they'll they'll be tested However, during the time that they're testing and even afterwards where we're trying to ensure appropriate masking and distance from others, it can be really, really challenging in that environment. And I think getting back to what you said about the sheer exhaustion, this is ongoing and it's sort of unrelenting and there has to be active management, constant reevaluation of the resources in the ED to ensure that we're optimizing um, and doing the best we can with the resources that we have available
1: hospitals really rely upon moving patients into care into to acute care or critical care and then discharging them often to things like rehabilitation facilities or long-term care facilities or long-term acute care facilities and it really feels like that continues to be a significant challenge for all of us you know these sites have been uh, places where there have been outbreaks there are significant challenges on infection prevention in that post-acute care setting as a result, we we continue to be at very high capacities, not only for patients with COVID, but just in general, as that ability to discharge patients continues to be uh, a barrier uh, for, I think, everywhere in the, in the United States right now for all types of patients.
2: One thing that is different about this surge than the prior surge is essentially um, in you know March and April and May for us, many things shut down and our capacity was really driven by COVID. And even in that Um, uh, setting, you know, discharge and capacity was a challenge, but it's even more so now where we have um, all the the kind of care that is non-COVID that continues. Um, And additionally, um, for COVID patients who are staying longer than a normal length of stay, uh, it's sort of uh, an ins and outs issue. If we can't uh, discharge patients to appropriate settings, we can't um, uh, make the capacity for more individuals to come in. And that's why we're trying to be as creative as we can around um, home health, these virtual observation, working with our post-acute care facilities in partnership to uh, do what we can to support them and to um, enable discharges when possible to keep,
0: keep things flowing. Great points, doctors. Thank you for raising those. Dr. Lynch, I'd like to stick with you and ask how the community infection rate and transmission patterns impact the healthcare worker infection risk. And does this play a role in transmission within the healthcare setting?
1: You know, as Erica was mentioning, the differences between sort of last year's sort of spring surge and what we're dealing with now is the enormous difference in the community prevalence. And so our health workers come from huge numbers of communities. And in all of those communities, we're seeing higher rates of infections. And so as a result, our healthcare workers are also getting infected at a higher rate than they ever were before. And so we think about that spring surge, it was really focused uh, for us here in Seattle on folks in very specific communities, a lot of people coming from long-term care facilities, and now we have COVID everywhere. It's in every community. It's definitely happening in some communities at a higher rate than others. And we still have the long-term care facilities and all those other risk groups that are ongoing. The biggest issue right now is that the community infection rate is driving healthcare worker infection rates. And those healthcare workers are bringing COVID-19 into facilities. Now, obviously, they don't mean to. They are, you know, sometimes asymptomatic or in that pre-symptomatic phase. Some of this is driven by lots of policy issues and challenges around sick leave and similar. But that continues to be a problem. And where we're really seeing the highest risk for COVID-19 transmission within facilities is from healthcare workers to other healthcare workers. You know, it doesn't mean that there's zero risk coming from patients to healthcare workers or healthcare workers to patients, but that's really continues to be the biggest challenge. And that's impacting our facilities and our work in all kinds of ways.
2: Everyone across the country is dealing with the amount of community prevalence that we have and the recognition, obviously, that our employees are out there in the community. And for the most part, their acquisitions are in the community. I think the way I look at this is it kind of uh, emphasizes everything that we were doing and have been doing up until this point has to be done even more rigorously. So all the uh, efforts outside of work to do all the things that you know are supposed to be done, do them. Recognizing the importance of symptom monitoring and, and not minimizing those symptoms and reacting to those symptoms and testing making sure that your policies are supportive of people and encourage them to do do what we're asking them to do, which is to be out of work while those results are pending. And then I absolutely agree with you. In the hospital, when employees are bringing in infections unknowingly, obviously, um, into the hospital, the transmissions that we've seen and the risks that we've seen have been primarily associated employee to employee Um, when we let our guard down, and I'm pretty sure almost every hospital can give examples of break room scenarios, but even outside of break rooms, um, external to the hospital, social activities between employees, and I I think we're getting much better at this, at least at our institution, um, and recognizing that while we might feel like family, our work family is not our family, and they're not our household, but certainly the amount of community prevalence and the, the proportion of our employees who are out and the impact that has on our capacity is obviously impressive. I would just ask John and how his facility is dealing also with the huge demands on our occupational health services around the contact tracing and then in coordination with infection control, doing exposure investigations that result from these infections.
1: Again, a place we're in strong agreement on and uh, shared experience here is that our employee health teams, occupational health teams have been working as basically small public health agencies in every hospital in the country working through not only the traditional employee health issues, not only dealing with, you know, how to get messaging out in around COVID-19 prevention, but now also acting as contact tracers, as risk assessors uh, through a lot of these challenging conversations. In addition, working through disclosures to patients when a healthcare worker is positive and how that works, the tracking, notification, testing, and all those different parts are incredibly complicated and have added another enormous layer of work to those teams. So, Eric, I couldn't agree more.
0: IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to covid19learningnetwork.org. Really excellent points from both of you. And Dr. Lynch, I'd like to dovetail On this discussion, and ask what is the role, if any, in testing healthcare workers who don't show symptoms. Right now, based on all the evidence we have and all the experience we've had, I still don't
1: see a a good role for testing healthcare workers who don't have symptoms. And you know, this has been brought up a number of times. I think there are some sites across the U.S. and healthcare systems that are doing this, either testing healthcare workers in a surveillance strategy or having permissive testing. So health workers can just decide to get tested as they wish. I can see the benefits to either of those strategies from sort of a confidence perspective uh, or maybe addressing concerns or or fear within uh, the employer healthcare worker populations. But from an actual like prevention perspective, I I can't find a good reason or a good way to get to doing this as, as a routine policy or procedure. And basically the idea here is that one, the absolute number of people with COVID-19 in your facilities is extremely small. So when you think about different surveillance testing strategies, you know, once a week, uh, every three days, you know, every five days, what are the right number to capture the number of people actually capturing that positive person who's asymptomatic and is at work and what to do about them is going to be a huge number of tests to actually capture that those small number of people. The second thing is what is that going to change in terms of policy? Uh, as Erica mentioned, you know, this hierarchy of controls approach, the layered approach to infection prevention and preventing COVID-19 in our facilities, right, is robust. It's multi-layered. We're doing lots of pieces. We need to stick with it. But surveillance testing is not going to change any of those things. Right. And so when I try to think about what's the win there, what's the the benefit of doing it, I just can't get myself to finding a good evidence-based way to uh, support routine testing of asymptomatic healthcare workers.
2: Well, I agree with you. I mean, I think that it's not an infection prevention strategy. So I don't view this as uh, something that is, for all the reasons you mentioned, uh, something that we think of as, as effective at preventing uh, infections, either infection in a healthcare worker from uh, an occultly infected patient. So I, so identifying those uh, transmissions uh, where they to occur, or the opposite way, which is uh, from the risk to the patient of an occultly infected healthcare worker. We know uh, from uh, studies that are out there that are uh, reports that the prevalence of asymptomatic infection among healthcare uh, personnel is probably pretty low, and we know that those, have, those individuals have been amongst us the entire time, and yet all the, the implementation of the hierarchy controls effectively mitigates the risk at Mass General and we're part of a larger system, we, uh, in the fall, began to offer permissive testing um, at employee testing sites. And that's where employees might go to get tested, for example, for uh, travel-related screening or for whatever personal reason they may have. So we allow it as a permissive strategy and, and we support that. However, it's not considered part of any infection prevention strategy that we have. And there's certainly, if a facility is thinking about uh, doing this. They have to think about the consequences, the operational considerations of this, and really um, that it doesn't actually change any of the strategies that you have in place at your institution to begin with around masking and uh, and so forth. And I think one thing that I, I don't know the answer to this is to whether or not it, um, it will change behavior. So you could imagine um, having a test on one day and would someone say, okay, well, I'm negative today, therefore I can do X. And normally they wouldn't do that, um, whether that is socializing with people outside of their kind of household or um, in the break room, maybe um, being less consistent. I don't know if that's really truly going to happen, but regardless, it's not um, really what I would consider a way to prevent infection transmission in, in the hospital setting.
1: In all the scenarios where frequent testing is being done, we still see infections.
2: Yeah, we do and we see them either from lapses in kind of the things that we know that we should be doing or just because there's transmission out there. You know, there's a community burden there and and it happens. But you're absolutely right in in the the so-called bubbles that are out there where they're doing kind of serial repeated testing, infections are identified, clusters still happen and from my reading of the literature, those clusters are often happening when people stop doing the things that
0: we Uh, all the hard work that we've been trying to do to date. So doctors, let me ask you this last question. How will vaccines change the landscape for infection prevention in healthcare settings? I'm gonna say for the better, but there's a lot that we just don't know yet.
2: So if you think about the hierarchy of controls, one thing we have not been able to add to that list, which is often in in most hierarchy of controls is vaccination. So that's right up there in, in an elimination strategy. But just like with other vaccine preventable diseases, having a vaccine doesn't mean that you stop employing all these other elements of the of the hierarchy. And as I've been thinking about it, my feeling of what will happen is that, you know, symptomatic people will still get tested, right? You know, when we were vaccinated for other diseases, if we develop symptoms, we still need an evaluation. And uh, generally, we're kind of out of work pending that evaluation. So I think symptoms will still in some way, um, need to be evaluated, whether or not, we change the bar in terms of severity of symptoms or otherwise, uh, that's to be decided. I am wondering how our exposure definitions may change. Um, Will we still consider people truly exposed if they're fully vaccinated? I don't know. I think we're going to be looking for public health guidance on that, but that would certainly, if it were possible to do that, if it made sense epidemiologically, that would be, I think, very helpful, both at the individual level and at an institutional level. What's going to happen as we move forward is as outside of healthcare, as our communities become more covered by the vaccine and we get closer to achieving what I hope is herd immunity, we'll start peeling back some of these measures, but I don't think we'll we'll know where the pre-COVID policies uh, are going to fall in the end. Now, I was thinking about would we keep, for example, a masking policy? Say community prevalence goes down, we have a lot of um, vaccine coverage. You know, we still have a masking policy during respiratory virus season that relates to employees who can't be vaccinated. Would we have something similar in our facilities? And I think um, you know, just so much is unknown about the duration of immunity and what about the impact on asymptomatic infection. And it's just probably too early uh, to tell how it's all going to fall out. Or in any way, it's, it's a good news. And hopefully the exhaustion that John was talking about in the in the beginning and that we're certainly feeling here is somewhat going to be lightened by the impact of the vaccine.
1: When we think about infection prevention and, you know, what Erica and I keep going back to this hierarchy of controls approach is with that elimination part is if this vaccine really has a meaningful impact in residents of long-term care facilities and older adults and adults with comorbidities in particular and they're not getting very sick, I'm very, very hopeful that that means that they won't end up in the hospital, they won't end up in the emergency department or acute care floors or in the ICUs, which is in a way elimination in, in a long-term sense because if we don't have people with COVID-19 in the hospital, we have lower risk situations for healthcare workers. And again, ultimately, hopefully benefiting uh, that issues around exhaustion and the fear that's currently deeply embedded in all of our work.
0: At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. chenoy and Lynch for their time participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.